Our, um, our scripture is 2 Corinthians. Now, as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in utmost eagerness, and in our love for you, so we want you to excel also in this generous undertaking. I do not say this as a command, but I am testing the genuineness of your love against the earnestness of others. For you know the generous act, our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. And in this manner I am giving my advice. It is appropriate for you who began last year not only to do something, but even to desire to do something. Now finish doing it, so that your eagerness may be matched by completing it according to your means. For if the eagerness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. I do not mean that there should be relief for others and pressure on you, but it is a question of a fair balance between your present abundance and their need, so that their abundance may be for your need, in order that they may be a fair balance. As it is written, the one who had too much did not have too much, and the one who had little did not have too little. I wanted to make sure you read that passage because there was a seamlessness between what you offered in your confession and what Paul was talking to the Corinthian church about. Um, and as important as that was, I decided to preach on the gospel, so I didn't get a chance to loop back to those words about generosity from Paul's letter to Corinth. Our gospel lesson is from the gospel according to Mark, the fifth chapter, verses 21 through 43. When Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered around him, and he was by the sea. Then one of the leaders of the synagogue named Jairus came and said, falling at his feet and begging him repeatedly, My little daughter is to the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. So Jesus went with him. The large crowd followed him and pressed in on him. Now there was a woman who had been suffering from hemorrhages for 12 years. She had endured much under many physicians and spent all that she had. She was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak. For she said, If I but touch the hem of his garment, I will be made well. Immediately her hemorrhage stopped, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Immediately aware that the power had gone forth from him, Jesus turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my clothes? And his disciples turned to him and said, You see the crowd pressing on you? How can you say you touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. He said to her daughter, Your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. 
While he was speaking, some people came from the leader's house to say, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the leader of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. He allowed no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the house of the leader of the synagogue, he saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. When he entered, he said to them, why do you make a commotion and weep? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. Then he put them all outside, took the child's father and mother and those who were with him, and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talithe kum, which means, little girl, get up. And immediately the girl got up and began to walk. She was 12 years of age. At this they were overcome with amazement. He strictly ordered them that no one should know this, and told them to give her something to eat. The Gospel of the Lord. Let us pray. Profoundly absurd words of a woman being healed and a dead girl coming back to life. Help us, O Lord, by your Spirit to understand what it means and to live in accordance with that Gospel. In the name of Christ, who healed and rose. Amen. In many of the healing stories in the Gospels, Jesus inquires as to the person's desire to be healed. What is it I can do for you? And the responses are as diverse as the illnesses that come to his presence. I want to see. I want to walk. I want to hear. I want my sick daughter to be well. My son is near death. I want him to be okay. A clear articulation of the condition and the expressed desire for wholeness seems to be part of how Jesus actually engages with individuals that are drawing near to him. When I started as a chaplain at the Rehabilitation Institute of Chicago, now known as the Shirley Ryan Ability Lab, my predecessor interviewed me for the position. Nina Herman Donnelly was going on sabbatical from her position there at the Rehab Institute, and she wanted to find the right replacement for that interim period. The interview went extremely well. We chatted comfortably, but towards the end of the conversation, she said, there is one thing you must do if you are going to take this position. When you meet individually with any patient, you must always offer prayer. I don't care what the religion of the patient is. I don't care if they're an atheist. You must offer prayer at the end of every session. And you must also ask the patient if they would like to pray. And prior to your prayer, you must ask the patient what it is they want you to pray for. She was adamant about this. Not completely sure, but I said, yeah, I actually wanted the job. But I also fully intended to keep my promise to her on behalf of her ministry. And so as instructed, I asked every patient in an individual session if I could pray for them. And most would immediately say, oh yes, please, please pray for me. Very few offered to say their prayers in my presence. And a few would tell me to leave the room because they didn't believe all that crap. <laughs> In every instance, those who did not want me to pray in their presence 
would say, when I pray for you, what do you want me to pray for? Only one patient told me in no uncertain circumstances to just not pray for him, ever. Don't do that. This prayer request made a somewhat awkward moment for me and led me to pray out loud for him anyway, <laughs> but not in his presence. I was keeping my promise to Nina Donnelly. Of course, because I work primarily with spinal cord injury patients, I often prayed that God would heal a patient so that they could walk. Never mind that the physician was saying that a completely severed spinal cord where there was a visible gap in the imaging, this patient was never going to walk, but still, they would say, pray that I will walk. My desperate clinical understanding of the prognosis, I regularly ended up rather uncomfortably for me, praying for the impossible. Lord, we know the doctors are saying this will not happen. Walking is not something that they think can happen, but we are asking you to heal this patient and make walking a reality. I prayed that God would regrow arms for a young man who was a bilateral amputee. I prayed that patients would leap and walk and dance when I knew full well it was never going to happen. In some cases, the prayers were not optimistic. For some of my fully paralyzed patients with severed C2 or C3 neck, looking forward at best to spend the rest of their days in a sip and puff chair, maybe, I prayed exactly what they asked me to pray. I prayed that they would die that night in their sleep. One morning after I had prayed that very prayer for a patient the previous afternoon, I stepped in his room, positioning myself in his field of vision because he could not turn his head. He said, well, Ralph, yesterday you prayed. I'm still here. Clearly, you're really bad at this. <laughs> Over time, I began to understand why it was so very important that Reverend, Reverend Donnelly insisted I offer prayer and request specific content because it was so very important that patients had the freedom to be completely honest with God, to articulate their exact desires, to hear their own words before spoken in the presence of their Creator. It was crucial to their own sense of wholeness and their own spiritual recovery. I was kind of a, a negotiator, a translator. I spoke God talk. They only spoke people talk. And was it possible to say out loud what they were genuinely feeling before God? I mean, what they were really feeling, no matter how absurd or detached or tragic or ridiculous it would sound to anyone else. Could they say that to God? Or were they just thinking that talking to God was putting together a bunch of words that you think God would like to hear? Or the kind of words that only you would be able to be comfortable hearing if someone were praying them. Working her way through the crowd that day when Jesus had come back from the other side of the sea was a woman who was constantly bleeding. For over a decade, she had dealt with the cramps and the frustration, the humiliation, the isolation that was a result of a chronic condition. In her tradition, Jewish law stated because she was bleeding, when the bleeding stopped, she could go through ritual purification and return to daily life with others. 
But because the bleeding did not stop, she was perpetually unclean. For 12 years, she was forbidden to touch or be touched, because doing so would require that the person with whom she had come in contact would then have to go to the temple and go through the rites of purification for themselves. She was forbidden to come into the temple courtyard and pray. People avoided <laughs> She must have done something outrageously bad to be in this condition, this ongoing curse. Doctors were of no help. Like the physiatrists at the Rehab Institute, they could only propose accommodations to her condition, but they were unable to imagine the cure. So when she heard that there was a famous healer, this Jesus, coming to town, she knew she had to give it a shot. She was so self-aware of her condition that she knew that she could not ask him to lay his hands on her. If he did, his laying hands on this unclean woman would result in his becoming unclean and delay his schedule while he'd have to go through ritual purification. So she reasoned that a simple tug on the hem of his tunic made her the trick, not full contact, just a touch of his garment. You wouldn't even have to know. And if someone saw it, she could point out that she did not touch his skin. She merely touched the unclean part of his garment. The bottom of the garment had drunk on the ground all the time, so it was already unclean. It would not be a problem. Cautiously, carefully, she makes her way through the crowd, and she draws closer, making sure that no one recognizes her. She drops to her knees. She gets close enough to execute her plan. She stepped towards her, and as he did, she reached and did it. And immediately, 12 years of hemorrhaging stopped. She was honest about her need. She made it clear to herself. She reached out. The miracle happened. God healed her body. Except, and this wasn't part of the plan, Jesus noticed. Who touched me? said Jesus. She gasped, absolutely terrified. What she had just done. An unclean woman had the audacity to touch the master's garment for her own selfish healing. But the audacity of that desire did not get in the way of Jesus' words. But it was, after all, on his way to heal a girl. What if that pause, what if, what if the fact that he maybe was rendered unclean would mean that he would be delayed and that the little girl would linger and then pass away? Would she have just jeopardized another, perhaps more important healing? But Jesus himself announces no disappointment, no hassle over the delay. Only the distraction that someone had been made well, and so he announced, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Be healed of your disease. That moment, the crowd, Jesus, woman, the tragic news. The little girl to whom Jesus was going to pray died. No reason to trouble him any longer. It had ended in tears. The master should go no further. If Jesus were to go and touch a corpse, you had the whole same ritual purification problem all over again. It is need to touch her to be healed, and he'd be rendered unclean because he was touching a corpse. And so Jesus merely announces, no, 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 she's not dead. She's asleep. It's okay to touch a sleeping girl. They, of course, laughed at him. 
And we read the rest of the story, how he went into the room with mother and father and says, uh, Talitha Kum, which is Aramaic for little girl, get up. And here's where we have this odd little clue in the text, the gospel according to Mark. Mark at that point points out the little girl was 12. 12. How did the woman start bleeding 12 years ago? In childbirth. In childbirth. But because she never healed and continued to hemorrhage, this self-same little girl was taken away from her. Her husband had full right to divorce her because she was unclean. He married another, and the girl was being raised by a stepdaughter. There she was, however, healed of her hemorrhaging. Her daughter restored to life. A mother and daughter restored to relationship. When it comes to healing, honesty about oneself starts by being honest with God. I fear sometimes that we don't discover healing because we have become far too loyal to our pathologies, far too loyal to our pathologies. We find all the ways in which our own weakness can be justified by whatever condition we have, and we actually, in some level, aren't really seeking healing for that condition. We're just asking for adaptation to our limitations. That we don't actually want to walk, we just want everybody else to put in a ramp. That we don't actually want to be whole, we just want everybody to put up with our nonsense. And when we say that out loud, unambiguously before God, then all of a sudden that begins to sound absurd because deep in our hearts, what we want to tell God is, is that we'd like to walk. We'd like to be whole. We want things to be healed. And all those prayers that I offered at the Rehabilitation Institute, I need to tell you, you probably guessed, not one patient jumped out of their bed and danced a jig because they said, Amen. <clears throat> That one. But whatever level of ability they did have, living with the dissonance between their desire and their medical reality was crucial to the healing of their heart. In those days in the Rehabilitation Institute, chaplains were scheduled on the patient's daily orders. I need to check with each patient to find a slot of conversation between their various therapies. Remember the patient that kicked me out of the room and told me to never pray for him? I came back to schedule another appointment with him, and he was a little startled. And I said, uh, I just wanted to know if you would like to be heavy on your schedule today. He said, of course, you should come back. I just like the fact that you're the only person in this whole building that I can push around. <laughs> I'm free this afternoon at 2 o'clock. For most of my patients, improvement was possible. That's the great thing about working in rehab medicine. Almost everybody gets a little better. Not full restoration in most cases, but almost every patient left in better shape than when they came in. A discharge more than one patient 
would tell me as I came in the room to say goodbye. They were sometimes finally upright, right, in a walker. They were able to roll their own wheelchair, or they had mastered the complexity of a sip and, sip and puff switching system. They'd tell me, remember? I asked you to pray that I would walk. Now, it's not exactly walking, but it's an answer to the prayer. Keep praying. Keep praying. Amen.